Well, good morning. I think most of you out there know Nancy and I, but uh, it's been quite a while since we've been here. Um, I'll introduce my wife, Nancy. She can just wave there from the seat. So in case you don't know her, there she is. Um, as always, it's really a privilege for Nancy and I to come here. Uh, we've been coming here for many years, but it's been quite a while since we've been here. And probably this is the first time I've actually shared the word with you, other than an update from our uh, experience in Africa. So if you know much about us at all, you know that the Lord has taken us, Nancy and I, from a place of real brokenness. He redeemed us, and he reconciled us to himself, most importantly, and to each other, secondly. And he has graciously used us in ministry. So we give him praise for that. Why does the Lord allow us to be broken before he uses us? Wouldn't it be easier if he just changed us instantly? Instead of taking us through the school of hard knocks? I don't know about you, but I think it would be easier. Maybe not as good, though. Recently, the Lord has uh, been impressing upon me the role of brokenness in our lives. There's a popular song out now by Casting Crowns. It's called Broken Together. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But it highlights a lot of the issues facing married couples as they realize that they are broken. They live in a broken world. And their expectations of life and each other need much grace. A good book that uh, speaks to a lot of these topics is one that I've read a couple of times. It's called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. I recommend it highly if you want to read that. He asks in his first chapter in the book, he says, what if God didn't design marriage to be easier? What if God has an end in mind that went beyond our happiness, our comfort, and our desire to be infatuated and happy as if the world were a perfect place? What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Think about that. Does this idea of holiness rather than happiness fit into the day-by-day Christian marriage? I would say yes. How do we get past the daily rut? I believe it has to do with our attitude, which God molds through trials and brokenness. So today I want to look at this topic of brokenness and how the Lord uses it to mold us and make us into useful vessels that glorify Him. Excuse me. How He uses it to make us into people who have inexpressible joy even in the midst of our brokenness. And as I studied, I saw that there are more than a few biblical characters that would be prime candidates as graduates from the school of brokenness before God. But today I just want to use the Apostle Peter as the basis of our lesson. And as you've heard, it's uh, from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-16. through 16. So in my study of this passage, I outlined five reasons for us not to lose heart in our trials and brokenness. And they all start with P, so you can remember them. But if you remember nothing else from today, if this just sounds like a drone to you, at least remember this, that Jesus 
the author and perfecter of our faith, has made it a habit of taking broken people like David and Paul and Peter and made them into joyful, useful men of faith. Let's take a minute to pray before we look into the Scripture. Our Father, we bow before You in the name of Jesus Christ. And we thank You for the authority of Your Word, Lord. And we thank You that You use it in our lives. And I ask You, O God, that You would help me to present Your Word and Your truth. And any of my own opinions would just drift away, Lord. Use Your Word, Father. Use Your Spirit to speak to us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Well, Peter is writing to believers here in 1 Peter who are living in Asia Minor, throughout Asia Minor, which we know today as Turkey, the country of Turkey. He was writing to encourage the believers there how to live victoriously in the face of persecution. They were Christians who were feeling the effects of hatred against them because they were falsely accused of the burning of Rome under Nero. Nero, if you know anything about his history, was a buildaholic. Nero wanted to rebuild all these different parts of Rome, some places that were already built up. And so instead of building somewhere else, he burned it to the ground. And then he blamed it on this new sect of Christians. So, of course, that had a very detrimental effect on the level of persecution faced by them throughout the Roman Empire. In verse 1, Peter called them aliens, strangers. Have you ever thought of yourself as an alien? I know when I think of aliens, I think of little green guys with lots of eyes and antennas. But I think Peter wants more out of that word. He also uses the word scattered. I'm using the new American Standard Version, so a couple of these words are going to be a little different. But this word scattered didn't accurately describe the believers, the majority of believers in Asia Minor. But he wanted them to identify with the Jewish believers who had been scattered, been forced to scatter from Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen that we read about in Acts 7 and 8. He used that particular word because the people would understand more clearly all the implications that it carried with it of being scattered of not belonging, of being homeless, temporary residents in a land not their own. It's a good reminder, even to us, like those believers, that we don't live in a permanent, righteous land of our own. But as Philippians 3.20 tells us, our citizenship is in heaven. Verse 2 goes on and describes those believers as chosen and justified, and in the process of being sanctified and set apart for Christ, to live obedient lives before Him. My, three, my hope is in verse 3. It ensures us that it's God who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This living hope is our eternal life, John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he asked Martha this question, do you believe this? My question to you is, do you believe this? What are you placing your hope in? Peter writes that they and us are preserved for our inheritance in heaven. That place which verse 4 says is reserved for us, imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away. Are you looking forward to an undefiled world? I know I am. The place where we can be permanent residents, citizens of heaven? It's God Himself who makes us elect aliens. And by His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to this living hope. Oh, what a day it'll be when Jesus comes again and takes David's throne and He rules this world. And this broken world will be made whole again. We are preserved by Him. Verse 5 tells us that we are also protected by Him. I imagine this verse is really kind of incomprehensible and completely misunderstood by unbelievers. How can we assert that we are protected when there are dangers all around us? When our lives are broken and we feel crushed by this world? When we read in the news about ISIS who beheads Christians and war forces people to flee from their homes? When we see the rule of law in our own communities eroding, do we still claim that our God protects us? The answer is yes. The power of God protects us through our faith in Him. What does this power protect us from? From this passage, it's obviously not protection from physical harm, right? No, it's protection from our tendency to leave our faith when the going gets rough. As the hymn writer said, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Our faith in Christ has justified us and it culminates in our salvation on that last day when it will be finally revealed. Not in the sense that it was previously hidden, but revealed in the sense that it will be complete, finalized, and fully experienced by those who believe and have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Our security is in the one who is able to keep us secure in our faith. No one can pluck us out of his hand. No one can take our faith from us. Amen. They can't disqualify us from receiving this great, great treasure. It's the omniscient, omnipotent, and sovereign God Almighty who holds us secure and preserves our faith for that day. And oh, what better protection could they or us have? In God alone is our salvation complete and proven to be genuine. And it's proven by trials. These proofs are brought about through trials and brokenness. But it leads us to joy. In, in verses 6-9, through nine, we read this. Peter doesn't just exhort us to joyfulness. He doesn't just encourage us to be joyful in the midst of trials. He states it right out as an obvious fact that we already have it and it's based on the protection of our faith by the power of God. 
He proclaims the truth of this joy in spite of the trials that they were experiencing then and many of us are currently enduring today. Peter starts the passage in verse 6 with the declaration of our joy, and he also ends the passage with the same declaration, but qualifies it even further by telling us this joy is so great that it's really inexpressible. There aren't enough words to express this joy. So between these bookends of joy, Peter teaches us that even though tested by fire, we must remain encouraged as we look to the steadfastness of our faith. We sometimes are unable to see this joy or this faith until we come out the other side. Oh, how much harder it is to walk by faith than by sight. Usually we can see the perseverance of our faith more clearly at the end of the trial that the Lord is allowing, rather than in the midst of it. When it's all over and we look back and we see by His grace, we actually did make it through with our faith intact. What inexpressible joy at the worth of the one in whom our faith rests. We are not to be self-dependent and therefore self-congratulating on keeping our faith through trials. No, it's the Lord who sustains our faith. It is He who holds on to us and not the other way around, praise God. What great lessons we learn through trials. I don't know about you, but I always learn the best lessons in my trials. They're the hardest lessons. Those are the ones that change us, the ones that really stick. What do we learn about our troubles and the brokenness of life's trials? In these verses, I see five lessons that clearly describe these trials. Lesson one, they are temporary. Verse six says, for a little while. I know the first thing we want to say is, praise God, they're only temporary. How easy it is to feel that they're permanent when we're going through them. Like things are never going to change. But we're a fickle people. And we're very swayed by our feelings. God is not in a hurry to end our trials. No, He's concerned about us learning the lesson. Whatever it is He wants to teach us. Take heart. The Lord tells us in Proverbs 3.12, For whom the Lord loves, He reproves even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Which brings us to lesson two. We need these trials. Scripture says, if necessary. How much, how much would we grow without trials? I'm not sure about you, but I think life would be too easy. I wouldn't learn the things that the Lord wants me to learn without those trials. In our present sin-cursed state, deep down inside, if you're like me, you know that these trials are necessary. We already read Proverbs 3.12, and John 15.2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Pruning hurts, doesn't it? But it's necessary. Lesson three says that they are emotionally 
difficult. The verse says, you have been distressed for a little while. The Lord knows about being distressed. Peter knows what it feels like to be distressed. But we can take comfort in the fact that, that we haven't yet been to the point that Jesus was when he sweat drops of blood in the garden. He knew the agony awaiting him. And in his humanity, he didn't want to go there. Jesus knew, however, that it's always the right thing when it's the Father's will. If we could carry our burdens so gracefully. Lesson four says these troubles come in various ways. They're not the same every time. Nor are they the same for each of us. It's one of the harder things for us to realize in our fellowships together that our sin is different for each person. The thing that we need to stay away from is not the same as our brother or sister. How often have believers attempted to build hedges around certain activities in order to avoid sin and expect everyone else to remain behind those hedges as well? It's one of the major problems of the Pharisees. No, none of us are the same. And we don't always know what other things our brothers and sisters are dealing with. Different lessons for different people. The Lord knows each of us. And lesson five, these problems do not affect our joy when it's rooted in Him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can and should still have joy when we struggle through these trials. It can be done if we can recognize and keep forefront in our minds the grace of God that Peter is trying to point out to us in this passage. Let's quickly look at a couple of verses in Psalm 51. You heard one of them earlier. This is David's broken heart after his sin with Bathsheba and his rebuke by Nathan the prophet. He says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Sometimes we can't erase the picture, and it follows us. In verse 5 he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's feeling the weight of his original sin, as well as the sin that he just committed. In verse 8, the second part of verse 8, he says, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Have you ever been to that place where you're so down you feel like the bones in your body are broken? But the Lord says rejoice. And he says it through David. In verse 14, he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Guilt is a tenacious enemy, is it not? Boy, when it follows you, it grabs on. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit, but sometimes it's the accuser. Guilt is a tenacious enemy. Verses 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David was distressed many times. Sometimes by his own doing, and sometimes by others. But David never failed to recognize that his joy was in the Lord, and the Lord's unfailing grace and mercy. 
David is the key character in a little book that I've read multiple times. And I really recommend this book. This is called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. If you ever feel a little bashed, it's called A Study in Brokenness. Look for this book. I'll even loan it to you afterwards if you like. Here's a quote from the preference of that book. The book, it says, this is what the author says, this book reflects my concern for this multitude of confused, broken-hearted, and often bitter Christians who now find their spiritual lives in shambles and who are groping about for even the slightest word of hope. There's a lot of hope in that book. There's a lot of hope in this passage that Peter is teaching us about. So even for you non-readers, it's an easy read. The next P is prophesied, verses 10 through 12. And these verses specifically focus on the prophecy of this grace that we find ourselves in. This grace, this conduit of our salvation through faith in Christ. God the Son is the very one who suffered on our behalf. He was beaten, battered, and broken for us. The Holy Spirit inspired those Old Testament prophets to write about it. They wrote not just for themselves, as we heard earlier, but for each and every generation right up to today. For you and for me to know and understand this great gift of salvation. The Old Testament prophets wanted us to know the details. They wanted to know the details. And even the angels wanted to look into this great salvation. But to know Him, to really know Him is to identify with Him even in His sufferings and brokenness. I'm not sure we would ever admit it beforehand, but isn't it true that we are usually surprised and offended when, uh, when we experience trials that cause brokenness in our lives? The prophets suffered, Jesus suffered, and yet we are to suffer as well. James 5, 10 and 11 says this, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Praise God. Romans eight sixteen and 17 says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Peter has something to say about this distress that has come upon the believers in Asia Minor. He has something to say to us about our brokenness, the brokenness of our world, each one of us personally. What makes Peter so qualified to be able to speak into brokenness? Well, if you remember anything about Peter, he was the guy who stepped out of the boat and sunk. He was the one who said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He was also the one that said with great, great conviction that he would never fall away from Jesus, no matter what. But when push came to shove and things got tough, Peter denied his Lord three times. He denied ever knowing him. 
and it broke him. He weeped. When the rooster crowed, Peter fell apart. He did the very thing he promised he would never do. His days just after the crucifixion must have been racked with grief and guilt. But really, who held Peter's destiny? Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22.31, He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith, faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The Lord Jesus held Peter in his hands. And even Peter himself couldn't remove himself from the hand of our sovereign king. Jesus restored Peter with a threefold spoken rebuke. Three times he asked him, do you love me? And Peter was now a graduate from the school of brokenness and ready to serve, prepared to proclaim the life-giving gospel to an unbelieving world, wherever the Lord would send him. And send him he did. If you read on about Peter's life, in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 34, he healed someone named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years. In Acts 9, 40 to 41, he raised Dorcas to life. In Acts 10 was Peter's vision of the sheet let down by the four corners. And that resulted in his preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his family, the Gentiles, very likely the first Gentile converts. And for all of these good deeds, what did Peter receive? In chapter 12, his reward was imprisonment. He went to prison, but it also records his miraculous escape as the church was fervently praying for Peter. This was the man that was broken by his denial of Jesus, but reconciled and placed into service by Jesus. Peter was a man so thoroughly changed by the Holy Spirit that he was able to identify with and empathize with the persecuted church in Asia Minor. I think there's a persecuted church living in the Middle East now that we need to be fervently praying for. His story should encourage us, even as we personally live lives of brokenness. If we allow ourselves to be restored by Jesus Christ, we can rejoice and be useful in him in more ways than we can ever imagine. You never know. Some of you guys could be sent to Africa, like our brother just was. Lastly, I want to sum up Peter's encouragement to us in the final P of today's message. Prepared, verses 13 to 16. Peter gives us four ways in these verses in which to be prepared for brokenness and for trials. The first one is prepare your minds for action. As I tried to look up these words and understand this particular portion of Scripture, the King James translation actually put it the best. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. And I believe this translation gives us the sense of what Peter is trying to say. We're to bind up all those loose ends of thought in our mind and tuck them away. You know, when he was writing in those days, those guys wore robes, right? Long robes. Whenever they had to do anything, they had to bind up their robes. They couldn't run. 
They couldn't fight unless they bound up these robes. Excuse me. Can you imagine trying to wrestle with robes that hinder you? I don't think we could do it. Better yet, picture this. You're trying to read a really good book, and there's a bee buzzing your head. It's a distraction. You'll never concentrate. But you have to take these distractions and bind them before entering into the action that Jesus calls us to do. Cross-references I came up for this, Ephesians 6.14, which says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. In Luke 12.35, Be dressed in readiness. That's the sense of what prepare your minds for action means. Be ready. Keep your lamps lit. Secondly, he says, keep sober in spirit. Sobriety carries with it the notion of being in control, having a clear mind, and being morally decisive. I don't know about you, but sometimes the overloading of too much worldly noise distracts me. Even too much of the news or too much of the sports clutters my mind. Too much TV is not only distracting, but it's damaging to us. We get peppered with the allurements of this world, and we get intoxicated with them. We need to be sober. Three, fix your hope completely on grace. This is the crux of the whole passage. All of what we've been talking about today is centered on grace, the unmerited favor of God that justifies us and holds us fast, fast to our faith. We need to stick like Velcro, adhere ourselves completely to this grace. Excuse me. A half-hearted effort by us doesn't change God's purposes, but brings only half-hearted joy in the midst of our trials instead of what the Lord really wants for us, that inexpressible joy. And finally, excuse me, As obedient children, be holy. The outworking of this grace develops in us holiness. Not necessarily a happiness that the world thinks is our ultimate right, but holiness that ultimately glorifies our Father. As I was preparing, I ran across a quote from a student at Trinity Evangelical School of Theology. I don't know much about this student, but her name is Irene Sun. She homeschools her three boys, and she writes this. We teach our children many things. We teach them to be strong, brave, and swift, yet patient, kind, and gentle. Rarely do we teach them how to be broken. Yet brokenness before the Lord is the fount of these very blessings. Courage and meekness flows most generously from a broken and contrite heart. If these four preparations are present in your life, not perfect, but present, then God will use you to be an eternal impact for Christ in this fallen world. But don't be surprised. The evil one is right there. And he will dog you. He will tell you that you are broken and useless. 
But take heart, the scripture promised us in James 4, 7, that if we resist him, he must flee. So one last reminder that I stated at the beginning, that Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, makes a habit of taking broken people like David, Paul, Peter, and other men and women throughout Scripture, making them joyful, useful people in faith who have impacted their world for Christ, even in the midst of their brokenness. He really does make us inexpressibly joyful in the midst of this fallen world. God bless you, and thank you for the opportunity to speak today.